Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm thanking you for listening. And we do have on this site over 3,400 audios featuring great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. And you can now go to Google Play Store and the Apple Store and download the Church One app for sermon audio. Just enter Hackberry House. My books are on Amazon.com. You can contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. I'm reading today from the life story of John G. Patton, autobiography, and we're in chapter 16. It's called Superstitions and Cruelties. About the time of my dear wife's death, our brother missionary, Mr. Matheson, also became exceedingly unwell. His delicate frame fast gave away and, and brought with it weakness of the mind as well. And he was removed to an etium, apparently in a dying condition. These sad visitations had a, a bad effect on the natives, owing to their wild superstitions about the cause of death and sickness. We had reason to fear that they would even interfere with the precious grave over which we kept careful watch for a season, but God mercifully restrained them. Unfortunately, however, one of my Anitiamese teachers, who had gone round to Mr. Matheson's station, took ill and died there, and this rekindled all their prejudices. He, a poor fellow, before death said, I shall not again return to Port Resolution or see my dear Missy, but tell him that I die happy, for I love Jesus much and I am going to Jesus. Hearing these things, the natives insolently demanded me to tell them the cause of his death, and of Mr. Matheson's trouble, and, and of the other deaths. Other reasoning or explanation being to them useless, I turned the tables, and I demanded them to tell me why all this trouble and death had overtaken us in their land, and whether they themselves were not the cause of it all. Strange to say... This simple question turned the whole current of their speculations. They held meeting after meeting to discuss it for several days and returned the message, We do not blame you, and you must not blame us for causing these troubles and deaths. But we believe that a bushman must have got hold of a, a portion of something we had eaten and must have thrown it to the great evil spirit in the volcano, thereby bringing all these troubles and curses. Another chief vindicated himself and others this way. Kara Panapum, the Aramanu, or great evil spirit of Tana, whom we all fear and worship, is causing these troubles. For he knows that if we become worshippers of your Jehovah God, we cannot continue to fear him or present him with the best of everything. As our forefathers have always done, he is angry at you and at us all. The fear of the deaths and troubles being ascribed to them silenced their talk against us for a season, but very little made them either friends or foes, as the next event will too painfully show. Nowat, an old chief of the highest rank from Anitium, who spoke Tannese and was much respected by the natives all around the, the south side of Tana, came on a visit to our island. After returning home, he became very ill and died in a few days. The deluded Tannese 
hearing of his death, ascribed it to me and the worship, and resolved to burn our house and property and either murder the whole mission party or compel us to leave the island. Noat's brother was sent from Anatium to talk to the Tannese and conciliate them, but unfortunately he could not speak the language well. And the Anatiumese teachers felt their lives to be at this time in such danger that they durst not accompany him as interpreters, while I, on the other hand, did not understand his language nor he mine. Within two days after landing, he had a severe attack of fever, and though the vessel he came in remained eight days, he was prostrated all the time, so that his well-intentioned visit did us much harm. The Tannese became furious. This was proof positive that we were the cause of all their sickness and death. Inland and all along the weather side of the island, when far enough away from us, they said that the natives were enjoying excellent health. Meeting after meeting was held. Exciting speeches were delivered, and feasts were given, for which it was said that several women were sacrificed, cooked, and eaten, such being the bonds by which they entered into covenant with each other for life or death. The inhabitants for miles around united in seeking our destruction, but God put it into even savage hearts to save us. Old Noah, the chief under whom we lived, and the chief next under him, Archirat, set themselves to rescue us. Along with Manuman and Surawiya, they opposed every plan in the public assembly for taking our lives. Some of their people also remained friendly to us, and by the help of our Anitami's teachers, warned us of danger and protected our lives. Determined not to be baffled, a meeting of all our enemies on the island was summoned, and it was publicly resolved that a band of men be selected and enjoined to kill the whole of those friendly to the mission, old Noar among the rest, and not only to murder the mission party, but also a trader who had lately landed to live there that no one might be left to give information to the white men or bring punishment on the islanders. Frenzy of excitement prevailed, and the blood fiend seemed to override the whole assembly, when, under an impulse that surely came from the Lord of Pity, one great warrior chief, who had hitherto kept silent, rose, swung aloft a mighty club, and smashing it earthwards, cried aloud, The man that kills Missy must first kill me. The men that kill the mission teachers must first kill me and my people, for we shall stand by them and defend them till death. Instantaneously another chief thundered in with the same declaration, and the great assembly broke up in dismay. All the more remarkable was this deliverance, as these two chiefs, lived nearly four miles inland, and as reputed disease-makers and sacred men were regarded as amongst our bitterest enemies. It had happened that a brother of the former chief, having been wounded in battle, I had dressed his wounds, and he recovered, for which perhaps he now favored us. But I do not put very much value on that consideration, for too clearly did our dear Lord Jesus interposed directly on our behalf that day. I and my defenseless company had spent it in anxious prayers and tears, and our hearts overflowed with gratitude to the Savior 
who rescued us from the lion's jaws. Leaving all consequences to the disposal of my lord, I determined to make an unflinching stand against wife-beating and widow-strangling, feeling confident that even their natural conscience would be on my side. I, I accordingly pled with all who were in power to unite and put down these shocking and disgraceful customs. At length, ten chiefs entered into an agreement not to allow any more beating of wives or strangling of widows, and to forbid all common labor on the Lord's Day. But alas, except for purposes of war or other wickedness, the influence of the chiefs on Tana was comparatively small. One chief boldly declared, if we did not beat our women, they would never work. They would not fear and obey us. But when we have beaten and killed and and feasted on two or three, the rest are all very quiet and good for a long time to come. I tried to show him how cruel it was, besides that it made them unable for work, and that kindness would have a much better effect. But he promptly assured me that Tanny's women could not understand kindness. For the sake of teaching by example, my Anitimi's teachers and I used to go a mile or two inland on the principal pathway, along with the teacher's wives, and there, cutting and carrying home a heavy load of firewood for myself and each of the men, while we gave only a small burden to each of the women. Meeting many Tana men, by the way, I used to explain to them that this was how Christians helped and treated their wives and sisters, and then they loved their husbands and were strong to work at home, and, and that as men were made stronger, they were intended to bear the heavier burdens, and especially in all labors out of doors. Our habits and practices had thus as much to do as, perhaps more than, all our appeals in leading them to glimpses of the life to which the Lord Jesus was calling them. Chapter 17. Streaks of Dawn Amidst Deeds of Darkness Another war burst that caused immense consternation, passed over with only two or three deaths, and I succeeded in obtaining the consent of twenty chiefs to fight no more except on the defensive, a covenant to which, for a considerable time, they strictly adhered, in the midst of fierce provocations. But to gain any such end, the masses of the people must be educated to the point of desiring it. The few cannot, in such circumstances, act up to it without laying themselves open to be downtrodden and swept away by the savages around. About this time, several men, afraid or ashamed by day, came to me regularly by night for conversation and instruction. Having seen the doors of the mission house made fast and the windows blinded so that they could not be observed, they continued with me for many hours, asking all strange questions about the new religion and its laws. I remember one chief particularly who came often saying to me, I would be an Afuaki man, that is, a Christian, were it not that all the rest would laugh at me. That I could not stand. Almost persuaded. 
Before you blame him, though, remember how many in Christian lands and amid greater privileges live and die without ever passing beyond that stage. The wife of one of those chiefs died, and he resolved to imitate a Christian burial. Having purchased white calico from a trader, he came to me for some tape, which the trader could not supply, and told me that he was going to dress the body as he had seen my dear wife's dressed, and lay her also in a similar grave. He declined my offer to attend the funeral and to pray with them, as in that case many of the villagers would not attend. He wanted all the people to be present to see and to hear, as it was the first funeral of the kind ever celebrated among the Tannese, and my friend Noah, the chief, had promised to conduct a service and offer prayer to Jehovah before all the heathen. It moved me to many strange emotions, this Christian burial, conducted by a heathen, and in the presence of heathens, with an appeal to the true and living God by a man as yet darkly groping among idols and superstitions. Many were the wandering questions from time to time addressed to me. The idea of a resurrection from the dead was that which most keenly interested these natives and called forth all their powers of inquiry and argument. Thus the waves of hope and fear swept alternately across our lives, but we embraced every possible opportunity of telling them the story of the life and death of Jesus in the strong hope that God would spare us yet to bring the benighted heathen to the knowledge of the true salvation and to love and serve the only Savior. Confessedly, however, it was uphill, weary and trying work. For one thing, these Tannese were terribly dishonest. When there was any special sickness or excitement from any cause, their bad feelings towards the worship was displayed by the more insolent way in which they carried off whatever they could seize. When I opposed them, the club or tomahawk, the musket or kawas, the killing stone, being instantly raised, intimated that my life would be taken if I resisted. Their skill in stealing on the sly was phenomenal. If an article fell or was seen on the floor, a Tana man would neatly cover it with his foot while looking you frankly in the face and having fixed it by his toes or by bending in his great toe like a thumb to hold it, would walk off with it, assuming the most innocent look in the world. In this way, a knife, a pair of scissors, or any smaller article would at once disappear. Another fellow would deftly stick something out of sight amongst the whipcord plates of his hair. Another would conceal it underneath his naked arm, while yet another would shamelessly lift what he coveted and openly carry it away. With most of them, however, the shame was not in the theft, but in doing it so clumsily that they were discovered. Once, after continuous rain and a hot, damp atmosphere, when the sun rose out, I put my bedclothes on a rope to dry. I stood at hand watching, as also the wives of two teachers, for things were mysteriously disappearing almost under our very eyes, and suddenly Miyaki, who with his 
War companions had been watching us unobserved, came rushing to me breathless and alone, crying, Missy, come in, quick, quick. I want to tell you something and to get your advice. He ran into my house, and I followed, but before he had got into his story, we heard the two women crying out, Missy, Missy, come quick. Miyaki's men are stealing your sheets and blankets. I ran at once, but all were gone into the bush, and then my sheets and blankets. Uh, Miyaki, for a moment, looked abashed as I charged him with deceiving me just to give his men their opportunity, but he soon rose to the occasion. He wrought himself into a towering rage at them, flourished his huge club and smashed the bushes all around, shouting to me, Thus will I smash these fellows and compel them to return your clothes. One dark night I heard them amongst my fowls. These I had purchased from them for knives and calico. They now stole them all away, dead or alive. Had I interfered, they would have gloried in the chance to club or shoot me in the dark when no one could exactly say who had done the deed. Several of the few goats which I had for milk were also killed or driven away. Indeed, all the injury that was possible <clears throat> was done to me, short of taking away my life, and that was now frequently attempted. Having no fires or fireplaces in my mission house, such being not required there, though sometimes a fire would have been invaluable for drying our bedclothes in the rainy season, we had a house nearby in which all our food was cooked, and there, under lock and key, we secured all our cooking utensils, pots, dishes. Well, one night that too was broken into, and everything was stolen. In consternation, I appealed to the chief, telling him what had been done. He also flew into a great rage and vowed vengeance on the thieves, saying that he would compel them to return everything. But, of course, nothing was returned. Uh, the thief could not be found. I, unable to live without something in which to boil water, at length offered a blanket to anyone that would bring back my kettle. Miyaki himself, after much professed difficulty, returned it minus the lid. That, he said, probably uh, fishing for a higher bribe, could not be got at any price, uh, being at the other side of the island in a tribe over which he had no control. In the circumstances, I was glad to get kettle minus lid, realizing how life itself may depend on so small a luxury. Next time, chapter 18, the visit of the HMS Cordelia. The visit of HMS Cordelia. I do hope you'll be with me at that time. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we do get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.